Well, here we go. Week four of Be Bold. How many of you are feeling bold as a church? Let me hear my bold people. Where are you at? One per. Oh, thank you. That's right. And so today we're going to continue our Be Bold sermon series. I'm going to start off by making everybody feel awkward. Okay, some of y'all already be awkward, but I'm going to make the rest of us all be awkward together. If you are on a serve team, whether it's the parking lot, the nursery, whether it's with kiddos, whether it's production in the back, whatever area it may be, if you're on a serve team, go ahead, do me a favor, please stand up. Let me see all my serve team people at. Let's give them a round of applause. It's you who make redemption possible. You show up first, you leave last, you love, you serve, you give, and it's only because of you redemption is possible. Let's give them one big round of applause today. Thank you so much to all of our serve team. You guys can be be seated. If you haven't guessed, guess what our sermon today is over? Serving. So pull out your handy-dandy note sheet. First blank is the easiest blank to fill out. Write this down because we will be, I will be bold with my serving. It is so important for us to learn how to serve a church because here's the reason why. If serving is beneath us, then boldness will be beyond us. We will never be able to be bold unless first we are willing to serve. Write that down. If serving is beneath you, then boldness is beyond you. There's a book called The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, and here's what he discovers. That out of a church, 10% of the people do 100% of the work. 10% of the people are involved plugged in, connected, and members of a serve team. Now, out of the other 90%, 50% of them have no interest in serving their church whatsoever. That's why they call them lay people, because all they do is lay around. That's all they do. They just lay around and consume and take and receive, but they do not give. 50% of people in a church don't want anything to do with serving. Now, the other 40%, here's the good news. Here's what they discovered. That 40% of people who call a church home want to serve, but many of them have never been asked to serve. So if that's you, today's your lucky day because I'm going to ask you to serve. At the end of the sermon, telling you this up front so you're not like, I wasn't prepared. Okay, I'm going to give you an opportunity to sign up and to join the team. This here is called a Connect card. We want to get connected with you. And if you turn it over, there is a box that says Serve Team. And at the end of the message, I'm going to present to you five needs that we have as a church for you to sign up, for you to join a team, and for you to serve. I'm telling you that up front so that way when I get to the end, you're not like, wait, I didn't know this was what I signed up for. No, I'm telling you up front because I'm going to get you today. Okay, either I'm going to get you to join a team or I'm going to get you to be offended. But either way, I'm going to get you, okay? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 6 because the big idea of serving is beneath us, then boldness is is beyond us. Acts chapter 6, we're going to see a case study in a growing church who finds themselves in a sticky situation. They need some help. And so they're going to raise up and they're going to release volunteers to be able to help the church continue to grow. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now, 
in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. What is the church doing? It's growing. In Acts chapter 1, we already looked at it in week 1 of the series. When the church started, they were running about 120 people. They were all gathered up there in the upper room, praying, singing kumbaya, eating chicken spaghetti. They were having a really good time. Everybody knew everybody. And then all of a sudden, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up. 3,000 people get saved in a single day. They went from 120 to 3,000. Could you imagine if next week redemption's running 3,000 people? You're like, yay! Oh, but that's a really big headache too. Hey, what are we going to do if 3,000 people show up at our church next week? That would be crazy. You're like, it's an answer to prayer. But at the same time, it creates a very big problem. What are we going to do with 3,000 people? Well, they prayed and they prayed. In Acts chapter 4, they prayed that God would give them boldness. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The church grows again. So in the first five chapters, now the church is running 5,000 people. And then we see this. Everything's growing, rocking and rolling up and to the left. Everybody's partying, having a really good time. Revival's breaking out. And then all of a sudden, here comes this word, complaint. Now, I know you've never heard a church complain, right? You've never met a church person who complains, right? You, not this church. No, nobody. At, this church doesn't have any problems. Like redemption. Y'all people don't complain. But I have heard from other pastors that sometimes people complain about their church. You ever, you ever heard of a, such a thing? Okay, after 2,000 years, some things never change. Some people, they have complaints. There is a complaint by the Hellenists so, that arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12, that's the leaders, the pastors, the apostles of the church, word gets back to them, so they come up with a plan. Here's what they do. They summon the full number of disciples. Everybody come on in here. We're going to have a team meeting, all hands on deck, leadership meeting, send out the email, make the announcement, send out the group text. We need to address this. So what do they say? There's a problem. There's a complaint. What do the pastors say? Here's what he says. It's not my job. Whoa, okay, that's a, little, that's a little on the nose there, Pastor Peter. What does he say? It is not right that I should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. How many of you think that's a little unexpected, right? You wouldn't imagine your pastor ever telling you those things, right? See, I love what he does here. He, he, he gathers together and he says, it's not my job. I'm going to release you. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to find some other people to come and to begin serving in the church to help solve this problem. He doesn't hold a vote. He doesn't uh, ask people their feelings. He doesn't send out a Google form for a survey. He just says, I'm going to raise up some new people, and I'm going to send them and teach them how to serve because it's not right that I should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out amongst you seven men of good repute filled with the Holy Spirit Spirit, whom we will appoint to this duty, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They all stood up and applauded. They're like, yay, this sounds like a great idea. And here's who they chose. Stephen, a man filled with faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumbaa, 
Parmenius, Nicholas, a proselyte of, like, did he pronounce that right? Okay, say it fast, say it bold, and people think you know what you're talking about. All right, these are the ones they sat before the apostles, they prayed, they laid their hands on them, and here's what we see. The word of God continued to increase. The church is growing again. More people meeting Jesus, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. They have more small groups happening. They have more outreach going on. More churches are getting planted through them and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, how many of you have ever heard people say that the church needs to be more like the church in Acts? You ever heard that? You ever heard that? I believe that. I want to be like the book of Acts. I want to see the day where 3,000 people get baptized in the single day. I want to see the day where we don't even have to take down the baptism tank because we got so many people meeting Jesus. I want to see the day that not only your family and your friends and your children, but your coworkers, college, roommates, classmates, and that person at the gym that they're seated next to you here because they've experienced life change through Jesus. I am praying for that day. I am praying for the day. You can't drive up to a red light or a bumper sticker without seeing an R bumper sticker on the back of somebody's car. I am praying for the day that we see souls saved, lives changed, marriages restored. I am praying for the day addictions will be broken, depression and shame and grief would be overcome. I am praying for the day that there is a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, every woman, every child experiences life change through Jesus. I am praying for that day. I believe that the book of Acts is the template, the model, the guide, and the prototype for what God dreams his church to be. I want to be like the book of Acts. However, here's also what I've discovered, is that a lot of people who say, oh, the church needs to be more like the book of Acts, are really just coming from a place of complaining because they're like, my church doesn't do that, that stuff. Oh, in the book of Acts, they didn't have lights on the stage. On the book of Acts, they didn't have an LED wall behind them. They didn't have drummers in the book of Acts. Oh, in the book of Acts, I mean, everybody knew Pastor Peter. They could just go up and knock on his door, and they could eat his wife's chicken spaghetti. Okay, in, in the book of Acts, you know, the, you know, I mean, you know, I'm just so offended because the, 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 the assistant didn't send me a birthday card on my birthday. <laughs> You know, I, oh, I'm really upset because, you know, the, the deacons didn't come and have a funeral for my dog, Fluffy. And so I just feel so unloved by this church. We need to be more like the book of Acts. Because what happens is a lot of people over-romanticize the book of Acts. They'll come to it and read it and see like, oh, the church in Acts did not have a problem. The only problem with that is in Acts chapter 6, we see there's a really big problem. And people start complaining. Listen to me. If Peter, who wrote a book of the Bible, is your pastor, you will still find a reason to complain. <laughs> like Peter thinks he's something really big, huh? I mean, I remember when he was denying Christ, and now he got a book deal. He thinks he's something else, writing the book of the Bible. That's what he thinks, right? Oh, Pastor Peter's too good for us now. I mean, you can even find a reason to complain if Peter is your pastor. Because... What I've discovered is church people like to complain. So what I want to do is I want to share with you some of the craziest complaints that pastors have heard. Okay, does that sound fun? I went online to an Assemblies of God pastors forum that I'm a part of, and I just asked him, I said, what is the craziest complaint you ever heard while you're in ministry? There was hundreds of comments, but I'm going to read to you 
Just a few that I found kind of funny. Here's, here's one of them. Uh, one man, he says, people shouldn't call you Pastor Chris. They should call you Brother Sanders, which is better than Colonel Sanders, but whatever. Um, your church amens too much. Amen. There we go, Doug. Thank you so much. <laughs> How about this one? I like your sermons, but you should take smaller steps. You should take steps out the door. That's what you should take. Okay. How about this one? Um, your church doesn't have a small group for cat lovers. Cats are demons. And we're trying to cast out demons. We're not trying to make a small group where they feel welcomed, okay? How about this one? Um, you shouldn't make people leave the youth group after they graduate. You're a creep. And we're calling the cops, okay? So if you're like that 30-year-old dude who shows up at youth group and you're like, oh, hi, I'm hip and cool. I part my hair down the middle like Gen Z, right? Then, 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 no, you, you've got a problem. You're going to jail. How about this one? Um, if Jesus preached out of the King James Version, it should be good enough for you. Nope, I don't think that's what version Jesus preached out of. Um, you're like, Jesus, he was American. He spoke American. Um, no, uh, Hebrew, and he spoke Aramaic, and he read off of a scroll. Uh, your, wife, your wife never compliments my hair or my dress. I'm like, there's probably a reason for that, okay? Um, and then how about this one? Um, this one's sad, but it says, uh, after buying a used SUV for my growing family. After our third child, one person left the church because they said, I quote, we are paying you too much to have a growing family. There's some crazy complaints. There's some people who are crazy and there's some crazy complaints. But at the same time, there are reasons that people can have legitimate concerns for their church. What we see here in the text is not a crazy complaint. It's actually a legitimate concern that people have. Why? Because the Hellenists are being overlooked by the Hebrews. You say, well, what does that mean? Remember back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached Pentecost, you had thousands of people who were celebrating the Feast of Pentecost from other countries. That's why when they heard him speaking in tongues, they heard him in their own languages and with their own dialects. This would be like if you're from Florida, you're coming here, and you're coming to, to participate. You have people from North Dakota, South Dakota, North Carolina, Hawaii, all gather together to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They all hear the message of grace and repentance. They give their lives to Jesus, and here's what they do. The Hellenist Hebrews, they leave their homes, they leave their jobs, they leave their family, and they move to join the church in Jerusalem. And so for six chapters, they're hanging out in Jerusalem to become members of this church. And what's the problem? The Hebrews the ones who are part of the 12 or the 120, back there on the launch team, the Hebrews are not welcoming the Hellenists into the church. And so they become disgruntled, they become disappointed, and they're on the verge of leaving because they've walked in the doors and they've been ignored. And the ones who have been there are unwilling to serve the new ones. Do you see why this could be a real problem? Let me put it more in terms of today at Redemption. If we buy this building and we're able to increase our sanctuary seating to 450, 
We have 400 parking spaces, 30-foot ceilings, and our church was to grow. What are we going to do when all those new people show up in the church? And no one's here to love them, serve them, help them, and to do ministry with them. See, the Great Commission is not that we would just go and make disciples, but it's also that we would teach them to observe all that God has commanded them to do. So on one hand, yes, we need to reach them, but on the other hand, we need to teach them. We need to love them. We need to welcome them. We need to serve them. And we're in a season right now as a church where we're believing and praying for big things to happen, for God to move in incredible ways, for God to reach down from heaven and rescue and ransom and redeem and change people's lives. And when they show up, what are we going to do with them? Are we going to welcome them? Are we going to love them? Or are we going to ignore them? That's what's happening in Acts chapter 6. Because the people who are here are unwilling to serve the people that God is bringing in. And then the church reaches a place to where they're having a very big problem. A complaint comes up because people are unwilling to serve. The church has a problem. Listen, you're never going to find a perfect church. Just so you know, you're never going to find a perfect church. Peter could be your pastor and the church would still not be perfect. You're never going to find a perfect church because there's no such thing as perfect people. Right? The church in Acts, they were perfect until people showed up. But the moment people showed up, everything began to fall apart. Right? You're never going to find a perfect church. And if you do find a perfect church, don't join it. You know why? Because one, it's probably a cult and they're going to kill you. <laughs> or number two, you're going to ruin that perfect church because you ain't perfect either, okay? Instead of looking for a perfect church, if you're taking this, write this down. Look for a bold church. Instead of looking for a perfect church, look for a bold church, a church that is bold enough to admit they don't have it all figured out, a church that is bold enough to admit that they got some problems, a church that is bold enough to be able to admit that they're learning from their mistakes, they're praying, they're making a plan, and they're preparing for the future. Don't go looking for a perfect church. Here's what you look instead. You look for a bold church. That's what you need to find. A church that's willing to learn from their past and mistakes and change so that way they can have a better future. Pray for a bold church that believes the best is yet to come. But right now, we got to make some changes. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 6. And so let me give you five reasons for us to be bold when it comes to our serving. If you're taking notes, the first reason is this. It's because we have a big problem. The church in Acts, they have a big problem. We here at Redemption, guess what? We have a big problem. Here's the problem in the first church. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the church is growing. A complaint comes by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Like I said, the church has a very big problem. What is the problem? The church is growing. That's a problem. It's a problem that you want to have, but nevertheless, it still is a problem. The problem is they're baptizing too many people. The problem is there's not enough seats in the sanctuary. The problem is they have more people signing up for small groups than they have small group leaders. The problem is that, that they have more people at next steps than they can afford to feed. The problem is people keep inviting their church. The problem is that God keeps answering their prayers. That's a big problem. The problem is that there's more babies in the nursery than they can dedicate. That's a problem. But it's a problem you want to have, amen? And here's the answer. 
The church has a problem, but God has a solution. And the solution, if you're taking notes, to the church's problem is when people learn to serve. The solution to the church's problems is when you learn to serve. There's a book by a man named Larry Osborne. It's called, it's called um, Sticky Church. And if you want an insight into how I think in the philosophy of our church, I encourage you to go buy it and read it because we base a lot of our ministry off of his philosophy. And what he says is that different churches, as they grow, they enter into new seasons and new games. He correlates it to sports. So a lot of dudes, you're going to like this illustration because it makes sense to you. So imagine an early church plant. It's kind of like playing golf. Acts 1, the disciples, they're playing golf. How many people do you need to play golf, right? Really just one. Just tee it up, set it off. There you go. Get the ball in the hole and then go have you a drink at the Caddyshack, okay? That's basically all you need in order to play golf. Do you know how many people max you can have on a golf team? Four. Four. I tried it one time. I was the fifth wheel at a friend's bachelor party, and I'm going around, and then the, the ranger comes up, and he says, you can't be here. You can only have four people. So I had to, like, be the caddy and just do donuts in the golf cart for an hour while my friends played golf because you can only have four people. Well, if you get a little more people, let's say you go up to five, you're no longer playing golf. Now you're playing basketball. You have five players on the court. The ball is bigger. The hoop is different than the hole in the ground for golf. And you have certain plays and it's picking up pace. It's faster. And so you've changed the game and you can't play basketball with a golf ball, right? And you can't put a basketball in the golf hole. You have to change the game as more people come along. And then when more people come, you switch from basketball and now you're playing baseball. How many people are on the diamond? Nine, but you have a roster of 40. You have different positions, you have pitchers, you have uh, more strategy that are involved with that as well because the game has changed. When more people show up, you're no longer playing baseball. He says, now you're playing football. And football is action-packed, it's high intensity, there's different um, coaches, you have special teams coaches, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, quarterbacks, cornerbacks, different position. You have special teams like punters and kickers and returners because it's a whole different game. And as the church grows, the game changes and you have to be aware of where you're at and what game you are playing. If not, there's going to be a big problem. And here's the situation in Acts chapter 6. The game changed to where where now they're playing football, but they were still structured and organized as if they were playing golf. How many pastors did they have? One. How many leaders did they have? Just the disciples. How many people did they have? 5,000. Do you think that's a little impossible for one person to spiritually shepherd and care that many people? Because the game changed, but they were unwilling to make the systems and structure changes that were necessary to facilitate their growth. Parents, you also understand this. Remember when you had your first child? It was the hardest thing in the world. And then you had your second child, and you're like, what was I freaking out about? Okay, that, that, this, this is hard. And then you had a third child, and now you're no longer playing man-on-man. -man. Now you're playing zone defense. Okay, now you're like, you take that one. You take this quadrant. I'm going to take this one over here, and if they go downfield, I'm going to catch them. Right? Now, could you just imagine if, let's say, you were pregnant with 87 babies? You're like, oh, I'm going to need a bigger house. I'm going to need a bigger car. I'm going to need a better husband who makes better money, okay? Some things are going to need to change around here, right? You understand that growth brings change, and change is a good thing. Change is a good thing. People are like, I'm afraid of change. You are not afraid of change. 
Do you know how I know you're not afraid of change? Because you change your clothes, right? Those of you parents, you change your baby's diaper, don't you? Those of you who grew up in the 80s, you changed your hairstyle. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Pass the Aquanet. Amen? Okay, you like change. You love change. And the church needs to change to facilitate growth as well. Because what we did to get us here will not be what God does to get us to the next level of our church. We're going to need to make some changes. There's a big problem. What's the problem? People keep showing up. People keep meeting Jesus. Big problem is I just did six weddings within the last three months. It's a big problem. That's a good problem, but it's a big problem. The big problem is we just had five couples give birth to babies. That's a big problem. That's a good, we got more on the way. And after the ice storm last week, I'm thinking in December, we're going to have a whole lot more. That's a big problem, but it's a good problem. And so what are we going to do? The serving is the solution to the church's problems. When we release, inspire, equip, and send people out to begin to serve, guess what happens? It adds a new foundation, it adds a new structure, and it positions us so that way we can reach more people. Serving is the solution to the church's problems. They have a problem. What's the solution? Let's sign people up to start serving. A big problem, number two, leads to this a burdened pastor. Peter's tired. Peter's beat up. Peter's worn out because he has a big problem, which has led to a burdened pastor. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. It's not right that we should give up. Now, true or false, if you were to bring this to your pastor, how many of you would be a little offended if he said this to you? If you go up to your pastor, you say, Pastor Byron, there was no one in the parking lot at church this morning. And then I were to tell you, okay, what do you want me to do about it? Well, you need to go to the parking lot and hold up one of those you are welcome pop signs. It's not my job. If you see the need, why don't you meet the need? How about you go hold a pop sign? Pastor Byron, we, we don't have enough people to work in the nursery. Would you consider working in the nursery? Well, no, I would never do that. Well, why not? Because it's not my job. It's not my job either, bro. <laughs> you say, well, that's the reason that we pay you. I'm like, uh, no, 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 that's not the reason you pay me. Okay, here, here's the reason that I'm your pastor. God gave me my job description. It's three things. To preach, to pray, and to prepare you to work in the nursery. That's my job. <laughs> no, seriously, that, that literally is my job. This is what we see in Acts chapter 6. Here's, here's what it says. It says, it is not my job to give up the preaching of the word of God and praying to wait tables. Listen, you don't want me waiting tables, okay? Before I was a pastor, that's what I did. I worked at Chili's for 10 years. I feel God in this place. Chili's is amazing. I worked at Chili's for 10 years. I waited tables. The Lord delivered me from that. I graduated, and now I'm a pastor, and I plant churches. God did not call me to start Chili's. He called me to start churches, and you don't want me cooking the meals. You don't. Ask my wife. She don't even let me cook at home. You don't want me cooking the church. Right? I burn toast and, I mean, I can't even make a bowl of cereal. That's how bad of a cook I am. Okay? And so you don't want me cooking the meals. You don't want me leading worship. Definitely don't want that. 
right? I mean, Jesus, the only one that likes it. I mean, he can interpret tongues. He has auto-tune on our voices. It sounds lovely to him, but pray for the person sitting next to me because I don't think they're going to come back to church if I sing, okay? It's bad. It's not my job. My job is twofold, to preach the Bible and to pray for people. And then lastly, number three comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 411. It's to prepare you. Here's what it says. And he, that's God. God gave, here's my job, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Those are pastoral ministry leaders. Why? To equip the saints. Who's that? That's you. If you're a Christian, you're a saint to equip the saints. Why? So they can do the work of the ministry. What is that? That's serving. For the building up of the body of the church. God gave you ministry leaders, pastors, to be able to equip you, to release you, to send you out to do the work of the ministry and fulfill God's call on your life. And when the church does not do those things, it reverts back to the pastor and it adds a heavy burden upon his shoulders. Because then the pastor has to carry the weight and responsibilities of the entire church. And that's not what God has called your leaders to do. God has called us to preach, to pray, and to prepare you so that way you can go and do the work of the ministry. And when that doesn't happen, it adds a big burden upon the pastors. Now, early in our church, this was not a big deal. For those of you who are around early in the church, you remember what it was like when we were planting. Okay, we started our church in a place called The Gig on Crockett Street. We had church in a bar for the first three years of our church. And we would set up and tear down every Sunday morning. You know where the trailer was at? My house. Everything we owned belonged in the trailer. We would drive it up here at 7 o'clock in the morning. Okay, you know who drove the trailer when we started? Me. You know who unloaded the trailer? Me. You know who set out the chairs? I was on the chair setting out team. I was set up in teardown. When you walked in the door, guess who greeted you? Me. Okay, when you saw the, ba- the, 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 the banners outside, you know who was on that team? Me. During worship, the slides, do you know who was running slides? Me. I would run slides and then run up on the stage and preach my sermon. And if you went to the website, guess who built the website for our church? I did. You know who designed that super cool R logo? That's just an R. (laughs) Me. If you found us on Instagram, raise your hand if you found us through social media, Instagram, Facebook. You You know who designed everything? Me. And if you did go to the website and you found our phone number and you were to make a call, guess who answered the phone? Me. You know why? Because not only was I the web developer, the welcome team, the truck driver, I was also the church secretary. (laughs) And if you wanted to know where I was at during the week because I was unavailable, I was working a full-time job teaching high school. Because for the first two to three years of the church, I never got a salary. I did all of that for free. While being a husband and while my wife was pregnant with our firstborn child. You say, Byron, why would you do all of that? Just be honest with you. It was a heavy burden. It still is a heavy burden. There's a thing known as the Dunbar number, and it says that the average, it says one person, maximum relationships, 150 people. After that, it begins to break down. Our church, we run almost 300 people. We are twice the size of the Dunbar number. 
Anything beyond 150, impossible to have meaningful relationships. It's a burden. The church in Acts, I did the numbers, the Dunbar number, they were 472 for one pastor. And even Pastor Peter couldn't do that. And he spent three years being raised up by Jesus himself. It's a burden. It's really hard. And a lot of pastors are really struggling right now. There's an epidemic going on, and it's not COVID-19. It's burned out, tired pastors. It seems like every time you, you know, get on social media, there's some megachurch pastor or some other pastor who has cheated on his wife, has shipwrecked his marriage, has abandoned the faith. And the one that scares me and my wife both is it seems like every year there is a high-profile pastor who commits suicide because pastors are hurting. Pastors are burnt, and they are very burdened because people in the church don't understand the job that a pastor has. Because you watch all the people on social media, all the YouTube famous pastors, all of those mega church pastors and their social media and their messages and their teams, and you see everything that they're doing, and then you walk into your church and it doesn't look like what you see on YouTube. And you begin to wonder, well, like, well, why doesn't that? I'm just gonna stay home and watch this church. Or you listen to their songs on Spotify and then you come into the church, and no matter how great the band is, it just doesn't hit the same as it does in your car. And there's an expectation placed on the church, on the worship team. There's an expectation placed on pastors that no, no longer is their job just to preach and teach, but now they have to write books and blogs and YouTube videos. They have to be funny and enduring. They have to have an IG story TV reel. They have to be able to have a YouTube channel and do all of these things when those are things that we don't see scripturally. And so because of the extra pressure and burden that is placed on pastors, they're burned out and many are leaving the ministry. Because we have a generation of church folk who love to consume, but they do not contribute. Who come to church to be entertained rather than be empowered and equipped and released into the ministry. People who love to sit on the sidelines, then roll up their sleeves and serve. Listen, the church has enough people who accuse it. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It doesn't need your help. And we've had enough Monday morning quarterbacks and armchair theologians What the church really needs right now is armor bearers, prayer warriors, and people who will roll up their sleeves and get to work. You have a burdened pastor who's tired, and he can't do it on himself. But I want you to understand something, that a pastor's greatest burden is also their greatest blessing. Do you know why me and Ashley started this church? It's because we love you. It's because we believe that you have a destiny inside of your life because we believe that God has a call on you. We started this church because we love you. Like, I don't just love systems and structure, right? I don't love pop signs and banners. I didn't start this church because I liked social media. I didn't start this church for those reasons. No, do you know why we started this church? Because we love you. And we had this crazy dream that if we started this church, God would save you that God would reach down from heaven into Beaumont, find your heart and bring you there on Easter Sunday, 2016, and your life and your family and your friends and everything around you would begin to change. We knew that that story was coming. And so we prayed and we believed. We believed in you and your marriage. We believed what God was gonna do through your child. We believed what God was gonna do. We believed that you had a call on your life. We didn't know you yet, but when you walked in those doors, we recognized that. We began to raise you up for that. When you 
you came in and had coffee with me and the Lord called you to our church. We started raising you, training you. You didn't even want to be on the stage the first time you sang. You walked off the stage because you were too scared and now you're leading worship. We knew what God would do in your life if we just started the church, if we just stepped out in faith and we just believed what God could do. We didn't do this because we just love ministry. We did it because we love people. The greatest burden on my life is also the greatest blessing of my life to see you become who God created you to be. And you don't get that if all you do is fill a seat. God has more for your life than for you to sit on the sidelines. God wants for you to roll up your sleeves and begin to serve. And my job is to preach and pray and to prepare you. And if I don't tell you this, I'm robbing you. First of all, you're robbing me. You're robbing my wife and my kids of their dad. Say, that's harsh. I know. But if we don't change and fix this, that's what's happening. So you're robbing me. You're robbing God. You're robbing the people who will come to our church. But ultimately, you're robbing yourself. Because you have a destiny inside of you. You have a call inside of you. There is something laying dormant, a dream inside of you that will not be released until you begin to serve. And I don't want to rob you. I don't want you to rob me. I definitely don't want to rob God. And so you have a big problem. You have a burdened pastor. Which means we need to come up with a better plan. The other day I was at our Redemption Leadership College and there was a good friend of mine that I invited to it. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, Byron, I've never had a complaint with the church. The only, the only one with the preaching, definitely not the preaching. The preaching, on point, right? And I was like, thank you. He said, my biggest problem with the church has always been the leadership. And I said, you and me both, brother. That's why you're here. That's why I need you. That's why I invited you to be a part of that. How many of you like my friends? You'd be like, I love my church. Yeah, but the leadership needs a little help. Anybody else? Anybody else? No? Okay, just me and him. Okay. Well, listen, we need some help. <laughs> okay, I love our staff and team. J.C. Selman, she's amazing. We couldn't pay her enough money for what she does in Redemption Kids. But outside of that, me, Trevor, and Ethan, like Larry, Curley, and Mo, the three stooges at the top of the org chart. Okay? Whoop, 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 whoop. I don't know how anything gets done around here. Like the only way our church is able to do what it does is two things, the grace of God and duct tape. And we're all out of duct tape, all right? which means we need to come up with a better plan because what we did to get us here will not be what we do to get us to that next level. There's gonna need to be some changes that take place in the church and we need a better plan. Peter recognized this in Acts chapter six as well. They come up with a better plan. We're not in the upper room anymore, boys. Some things are gonna have to change. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute filled with the Holy Spirit whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to what? Prayer and to the preaching of the word of God. And what they said pleased the entire gathering. They have a team meeting. We gotta come up with a better plan. We need to have a better plan. We gotta figure this out. We've been praying and praying and praying and it seems like God has begun to answer our prayers. And so when God answers our prayers, we need to have a plan. Do you have a plan for your prayers? What if God answered your prayers? What are you gonna do? How are you going to steward that? How are you going to handle that? How are you going to nurture that prayer and, and be the response to the answer? You need to have a better plan. 
And so they get together and they decide, hey, guys, we need to, um, we need to come up with a, a better plan because, well, things are not going very well for us. We have a problem. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. What would happen if God answered our prayer? We preach bold prayers. Pray prayers that scare you. Pray for a gospel-centered movement. Don't ask for an egg and get a scorpion. Pray. Knock on the door of heaven. Pray. Pray. Well, what if God answers that prayer? What are we going to do? What if God brings in hundreds of people? Where are we going to put them? What are we going to do if God actually answered our prayers. We need to have a better plan. And some people say, well, well I don't think the church needs to, to plan. The church in Acts didn't plan. They just prayed and the Holy Ghost showed up and everything exploded. Yeah, but in Acts chapter 6, everything imploded because they didn't have a plan. It wasn't because they stopped praying. They're still praying. They're praying and praying and they're praying about how to come up with a better plan. Listen, failure to plan is a plan to fail. Did you know that? Failure to plan is a plan to fail. So I don't think the church needs to pray. We just need to trust the Holy Ghost and he'll give us the... the, No, look, Jesus says it like this in Luke 14, 28. Jesus says, which one of you desiring to build a tower, or maybe another way to say it is, which one of you desiring to buy a building does not first sit down and count the cost, make the plan, whether he has enough to complete it. Jesus tells us, yeah, pray bold prayers, but on the other hand, you need to come up with a better plan because failure to plan is a plan for the church to fail. If statistics are true, and let's just say that when a church plant moves from a rented facility into a permanent first home, it doubles in size in the first six months. Those of you who were here from the beginning, you saw this happen when we moved here. When we moved here, we were 80 people. After our grand opening launch, we were running 300 within the first year. We more than tripled in size. Now let's say as we buy and renovate this new building, next year when we have our grand opening, we'll move from about 300, double in size in six months to be running 600, which the next growth barrier is 1,000. So potentially vision casting five years from now, our church could be running 1,000 people. What are we going to do with them all? Where are we going to put them? We need to come up with a better plan. I mean, just think about it. Statistically, 30% of a church is children. So if we have 1,000 people, that means we're going to have 300 kiddos running around here every Sunday. That's more kids than we actually have as adults in our church right now. And I believe that children need a ministry that's life stage and age appropriate for them. So that means that we need a nursery. Then we need to graduate from nursery to crawlers to walkers to talkers to wipers. And then preschool needs their own. And then first through second grade and is different developmentally than third through fifth grade. So we're going to need all these preschool workers. Then we're going to need all these different elementary workers. And then we're also going to need youth ministry. Because as the youth grows, have you ever seen a sixth grader compared to an 11th grader? Totally different species. <laughs> They're like from different planets. And then you put the boys and girls in the same room together. Okay, that's not good. 
That's definitely not good. And so we're going to need men and women to invest in the next generation. How many of you wish that you had a mentor in your teenage years to be able to help you, to be able to speak life into you? You get the possibility to be that for the next generation because one day we're going to hand this church off to them. And my prayer is that when we do, it will be better, it will be bigger, and it will be bolder than it was when you walked through these doors. We need to invest in the next generation. How are we going to do that? By getting you to sign up to serve. Personally, I believe that every member of a church needs to be in a small group. And if we have 1,000 people, how many small groups do we need? We need 100 small groups. Because you're not going to build relationships in the lobby. DIY discipleship does not exist. God did not make you to do life alone. You need to be in community with some other people to encourage you, pray for you, and share a meal with you. That's how we grow spiritually. As the church gets bigger, it also needs to get smaller, and that's why we need to be in small groups. So we need 100 small groups to facilitate the growth of our church. How many do we have now? Nine. Some things need to change. What got us here will not get us there. And if we do not make a plan, we've made a choice. We've chosen to fail. And our church is pretty much stuck at 250. Okay, so people say, how many people can redemption run? And my answer is always 250. No, no, we could definitely have more than that. I mean, we have more people right now in the church. We got like 300 people. On a special day, we'll have 340 people. We could definitely have more than 250. No, we can't. You know why we couldn't grow to 500, 1,000 today? Because we don't have the leadership to be able to accomplish it. Because here's what we do as a church. We get 300 and then drop back down to 200. And then we work our way back up to 300, drop back down to 200. And then we bust our butts and our tails and we overwork our volunteers and we get back up to 300, set back down at 200. You know why? Because our church is designed to get the results that we are getting. Some things need to change. And the only thing worse than being a church stuck at 200 is to be a church that used to run 1,000. Because when you go invite your friends, say, hey, I go to Redemption, you know what they'll say? Oh, I used to go there too. It's the only thing worse than being stuck at 200 is to be a church that used to run 1,000, but we're not prepared for God to answer their prayers. Failure to plan is a plan to fail. And I want you to know, I do not plan to fail. I do not. I'm a three on the Enneagram. It ain't happening. I do not plan to fail. Instead, we make a plan. So I want you to know, Redemption, we have a plan. We have a plan. Now, we drew it on the Etch-A-Sketch, but we do have a plan, okay? So here's, here's the plan that we have come up with. Number one, we're partnering with Visioneering Studios. As we get ready to buy this building, Visioneering is an Assemblies of God architecture firm, engineering firm out of Dallas. They have agreed to work with us at a denominational, discounted, super-duper amazing rate. And so all of the work with the city, the build-out, all of the um, architectural renditionings, all of those things are going to be done by them, which is going to save me headaches. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get serve days and demo days and you're not going to get to take a sledgehammer and work out all your childhood trauma on a wall. You can do all of those things. But it does mean that we're not flying in this blind like we did when we first moved into this building. We have a plan. The second is our church extension project. It is an arm of the Assemblies of God financial 
Credit Union, and they're going to be working with us to front us the money to buy the building. They're going to give us the loan up front, and then when you make your Be Bold pledge, it's doing two things. Number one, it's offsetting the cost because you don't have to borrow however much they give you, and the more, the least you borrow, the less likely you are to go in debt. And so it's going to go to offset the debt cost, but at the same time, we're going to begin a debt elimination program that we should be debt-free within the first 10 years of our church moving into this building. And so that's where your Be Bold Giving Pledge is. We're already up to 200 out of a $500,000 goal. And so as we start this project, you're going to hear of special bonus days. So there'll be a day where we're like, okay, guys, we need to buy all new worship equipment, all new line arrays, speakers, woofers, lights, projector. So it's going to cost us $10,000. Let's do a little mini campaign to raise 10000 because I don't believe that God wants his church in debt. If God doesn't want you in debt, he sure don't want his church in debt. And so that's what we're going to be doing with the church extension project. Number three, Aplos Accounting. So in 2020, we switched to Aplos. There are accountant, there are software, and there are um, bookkeepers that we use. So no one in your church, no leadership person touches any of the money in the church. The only thing is, is we make the deposit and they handle the budget. Every month they send us an expense report, profit and loss margins. They balance the budget for us. I submit that to the board and then the board holds us accountable. And so you can be sure that your church is taking good stewardship, that every T is crossed, every I and lowercase j is dotted and all of your beans are counted, okay? That gives you confidence in your boldness when you begin to give. That your church is not just taking off its shoes to count to 20 and figuring out how many people. No, we, we have a plan. The next thing is Redemption Leadership College. On Monday night, we had our first interest meeting. We had about 15 men and women who expressed a call of ministry on their life. And they have signed up for a 13-month residency program to where at the end of their Bible college, theological training, leadership training, they will receive credentials with the Assemblies of God as certified ministers of the gospel. We're raising up in-house. Some of them are going to be released to be missionaries overseas. We have one of ours who are going to be going to Africa this summer. Others are going to become deacons and elders and leaders in the church. And then others are going to find different areas of their calling in which God has called them to serve. I am really excited about these men and women who are going to be stepping up and serving in the leadership capacity in our church. We're raising them up in-house, just like just like Stephen and Philip and Timon and Pumbaa, they're raised up inside our house. Which leads to the fifth thing, is that we will be making new pastoral hires as a church. After five years, I will no longer be the only pastor in our church. You can applaud for that. <laughs> and I want to let you know up front, the first hire that we are making, he is a son of the house. He's been faithful to us for the last five years. And starting in two weeks, Ethan Burke will be full-time with us as a church. He's going to be taking over a, an associate role. So he will be doing pretty much everything that I am not good at or do not want to do. That will be his job. 
Uh, he will be working with young adults as we launch a young adults ministry. He will be working with um, small groups to equip and facilitate small groups in growth. And then he will be side by side with me because, well, he has a call of leadership and I want to be able to invest and have my fingerprint on his life as well. And so that's our first new hire. But I also want you to know that come Easter time, we will be hiring a worship pastor. And so please be praying for us as a church because we've narrowed the interviews and candidates down to two very promising people. They may be watching online right now. If so, I love you. The church is praying for you. We believe that the best is yet to come here at Redemption. Amen? Amen. Amen. Here's what this frees me up to do. After five years, I get to be your pastor. After five years, I get to do what God has called me to do, which is two things, to preach, to pray, and number three, to prepare you. The more we take the load off of our shoulders, the more I'm able to love you the way God wants me to. So here's my dream. My dream is I'll spend the next 40 years as your pastor. I'm not going anywhere. I'm 35. I'll spend the next 40 years as your pastor preparing you to do the work of the ministry, praying for you. I'm going to give you my life redemption. And here's what I'm going to do during that time. My prayer is that I get to preach verse by verse through every single book of the Bible every single book of the Bible, to devote myself to the ministry of prayer. I want, when I'm like 65, I want to preach from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to preach Revelation 19, and I'm going to say, Jesus, you didn't come get me, so I'm going to get you. And I'll die, preach the last verse, close that casket, open my eyes in heaven, and hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. That's my prayer. And so for the next 40 years... The Bible will be preached, Jesus will be lifted up, and lives will be changed. I will give you my life. I love being your pastor. How does that sound? And what they said pleased the whole gathering. All right, good job, good job. (laughs) Which leads to you. Number four, we need bold people. We need bold people. Listen to what it says. It says this, it says, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas, you thought I was going to say it again, didn't you? Proselyte of Antioch, and they set him before the apostles, and they prayed over them, and they laid their hands on them. Throughout this whole series, I've been saying, do you want to be bold? Are you ready to be bold? Do you, do you desire to be bold? You want to step out in boldness? And you've said, yes, pastor, I want to be bold. You've said you wanted to be bold. You're ready to be bold. And here's what I've told you. You already are bold. Boldness is inside of you. My prayer is that I'm able to bring out the boldness that God has already put in your hearts. Do you know why boldness is inside of you? Because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. In Acts 4.31, they prayed for boldness. And you know what God did? He filled them with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to preach the word of God with boldness. Listen to me. Boldness is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. If you want to see a bold church have a spirit-filled church. Men and women who are filled with the spirit because the spirit of God empowers you to walk in faith, to live a life of risk, and to live a life of boldness. Boldness is a byproduct of the Lord. How did these seven men, what is the qualification for these seven men to be bold? What was it? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Because boldness is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, here's the good news. You have the Holy Spirit. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, Jesus gave you the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is inside of you. The third member of the Trinity resides and lives and indwells and fills and empowers you to live a life of meaning, of reason, and of purpose. I want you to get this because I don't think Christians understand this. You're like, I'm just not special. I'm just not important. I don't have any gifts. I don't feel very bold. Listen to me. Lies. The truth is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God, very God, lives inside of you. The same God that hovered over the waters when the earth was without void in the book of Genesis lives inside of you. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Gideon and Othniel and Deborah in the book of Judges to conquer is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. The same Holy Spirit that gave insight to the prophets is the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Elijah was just a man like us and he prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain and then he prayed again and it rained. You have access to those same things because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The warrior of David, the warrior of Saul, the leaders of the nation of Israel, they only had what we all have. They had God on the outside but you because of the resurrection of Jesus you have God on the inside. Redemption, you are bold. And my prayer is that I am able to inspire you to release the boldness that is already inside of you. And you will never learn how to be bold unless you first step out and begin to serve. Boldness is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. I have a whole list of five things that happen when you serve. I don't have time to get them to the day, so you can ask first service, and I'm sure they'll tell you. But the last thing is this, is we have a church of bold people. And the the final point is this, it's because we have a bigger purpose. Here's Here's what takes place. And the word of God continued to increase, the church grows. Again, more people meet Jesus. Your friends are sitting next to you in service now. Your daughters are getting baptized now. The church continues to grow. More people having kids. More children being raised up in the ways of the Lord so when they grow older, it does not depart from them. The church grows. And the word of God increases. The number of disciples multiply greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. This is our prayer for us as a church. That we would serve a a bigger purpose than ourselves. That we would not come to church just to think, what's in it for me? but that we would come to church and we think, what is God wanting to do in my life that is able to be a blessing in somebody else's? We don't come to consume, we come to contribute. We don't just come to receive. Yes, we do receive, but we come to give and to be a blessing to others. Because when we do those things, more people meet Jesus, more lives are changed, more marriages are restored, more young adults become men and women who one day will lead this city and they can help others begin to experience life change like never before. That's why we do what we do because we serve a bigger purpose. Listen to me, Redemption. Here's the truth. We have a problem. But God has a solution. And the solution is when people learn to serve. Yes, the church has a big problem, but better than that, 
We have a bigger purpose. If you're taking notes, that's one of the last lines. We have a big purpose. Our purpose is to see a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city where every man, woman, and child experiences life change through Jesus. And we cannot do that without men and women who are willing to begin to serve.